Support for Think Humanities is brought to you by the Spalding University School of Creative and Professional Writing. Think Humanities, a podcast for people who love history, philosophy, culture, literature, civic dialogue, and the arts. Think Humanities from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's story for 50 years. Here's your host, Bill Goodman. Welcome to our Think Humanities podcast. A few weeks ago, I wrote our board uh, a monthly blog, if you will. It's called Board Notes. And in the board notes, I explored with them uh, my thoughts about uh, the humanities and the sometimes difficult uh, task of explaining to people what the humanities are. What are think humanities? And of course, there are many definitions. Uh, We uh, across the state uh, are involved in history and literacy and the Kentucky Book Festival and many other programs that we've been producing at Kentucky Humanities for many years. But I also said uh, the root word uh, of humanities, of course, is humanity. And I gave them an example of humanity in the real world, and that uh, was a demonstration by a friend of mine for many years uh, whose name is Robert Cornett, uh, an attorney in Georgetown, Kentucky, who practiced his humanity when he asked, like many of us have, when the war uh, between uh, Russia's invasion uh, in Ukraine uh, broke out, what can I do? What can a private citizen of the United States of America do to help the catastrophic uh, disaster that's occurring with the Ukrainian people. And what Robert did is to decide to leave his, uh, the comfort of his home and travel to Ukraine uh, or to the border or, or to as close as he could get uh, to practice humanity, uh, which uh, is reaching out to uh, the people who are suffering and do what he possibly could. And Robert's our guest today on our Think Humanities podcast. Uh, Robert, it's uh, good to see you uh, back after your second uh, trip uh, to that area. And I appreciate you coming in to talk with uh, with me about your experiences and about the humanity that you did practice. Well, appreciate being here. Thanks, Bill. So, Robert, if you will, uh, tell me, um, going back to that comfort of your living room and the decision that you made to uh, to do something. Uh, tell me about that. Well, we had a little more of a relationship with Poland than most of the people in Kentucky because my wife Linda had uh, been in school there for six weeks when she was in grad school back in the late 70s. Uh, she was there when John Paul was brought in as Pope, which was a big deal in Poland because he's from Krakow. And then Lynn and I visited Poland on a World War II trip tour eight years ago for three weeks, so it wasn't a strange place to us. And so when this thing started happening, we were like everybody else. It's pretty outrageous. And uh, we saw how the Ukrainians were reacting. They weren't rolling over. And, and then we saw how the Poles were reacting, which was, we're here to help. And we watched some of the news footage of there was a couple our age from Copenhagen who drove two buses all the way to Krakow to the border saying, we can take 10. And they took 10 people to their homes, total strangers. And we were thinking, you know, if people can do that, we can help. And we had a little time and a little resources. And 
bought our plane tickets and rented a car and showed up and said, what can we do to help? And we were nowhere near the only people doing exactly that. There was a young man from North Carolina there, did exactly the same thing. It turned out he was a carpenter. And they put him to work on the border, which was just thrown together, building stuff to make it more of a, 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 a community rather than just a ramshackle collection of tents. And it's, but just multiply that story hundreds and hundreds of times by people wanting to make the world a better place. And I, to me, it's the whole world standing shoulder to shoulder on that border giving Putin the finger. And I just, it makes you feel good to know, because there are people from every country there wanting to help out. And it, all of them working in their own way to make the world a better place. And I think they were doing it. And there were people from all over the world, you said? All over the world. They just, there were Brits, there were French, there were Italians, there was a, a, a group of Sikhs. The Red Crescent from Egypt was there. Uh, I met a guy from Wales who had uh, watched the videos, and he was about my age, and he had uh, thought about his grandchildren going through that kind of thing. He quit his job and went to the border and has been helping since. And it just, you hear that story again and again and again, and that, there was... I met a 22-year-old from Connecticut, done the same thing. She was helping out with World Central Kitchen at the Shemish Shelter. And it's just all walks of life, everybody wanting to make the world better. It's, it's a very uplifting experience considering the circumstances that we were in. When you first made the decision to go, did mm-hmm. you have to go through um, the State Department or uh, a congressional office or... Uh, what what were the particulars of uh, of jumping on an airplane and and going? Well, there weren't any. I mean, we I spent a little bit of time trying to hook up with some organization we could volunteer with, figuring that might structurally work a little better. But I didn't get any responses. But this was like I don't know, March the fifth or sixth. It only been going on for ten days or so, and um, everybody was scrambling. And since we traveled to Poland, we weren't intimidated by the idea of doing that. So we bought plane tickets with Delta and, and rented a van from Hertz. And uh, and there was anybody who wants to go can go. It's just a matter of having the time and the, and the inclination to do it. It would be a little better if you were connected to an organization. But I've spent several different times the last few days talking to other people who are doing the same thing, who are already on the ground in Poland now. One, one fellow is leaving day after tomorrow and just trying to get advice about what to do and, and where they can help out. When you were at home before you made the first trip uh, to Poland, what images did you see that uh, spurred your action? Well, the two, the one that res- resonated the most, one I mentioned earlier, seeing those 60-year-olds from Copenhagen who drove their vehicles there to take 10 strangers in, because if they're willing to make that sacrifice, everybody should be able to help out some way. But, you know, you see kids, the, um, there was a video of a girl carrying her cat, and you just see things like that. And even now, it's really hard to accept. And then we saw those things in real time once we got to the border. And, you know, kids, I've got a picture of a little girl carrying her dog that... Um, I wound up giving a ride from the, the, the border to a shelter, and you know those images will stay with you. 
there was uh, uh, the, the Ukrainians tend not to speak English. I'm not sure why that is. The Poles mostly do, but uh, I had a Ukrainian lady in my van with her mother and three kids and their dog, and none of them spoke English. And we we're driving to the shelter, and I, and then she in very halting English. She says, "Where are you from?" And I said, "America." And she paused and then said, why you help Ukrainian people? And you know, how do you answer that other than I want to help? And it's, uh, that may be the phrase I remember the most from that trip is why you help Ukrainian people. What did you end up doing to help the Ukrainian people? Well, when we got over there, we spent some time in Krakow, partly recovering from jet lag. And there's a couple of shelters at the train station in Krakow. And we were volunteering there mainly just, what do you need? And uh, every time you get a frantic everything response, we'd go to a local grocery, just like a Kroger's, uh, and fill up gross baskets and take the stuff over to them. And we refined that and got better at it if we did it several times. We did that for, I guess, three days. And then we met an American from Charlottesville, Virginia, who was fluent Polish speaker. Her parents were both Polish. She was wanting to go to the border, and she didn't have a vehicle. So we made common cause, and she became our guide slash translator. And we headed to the border at Medica. And uh, once we got there, Linda almost immediately met a lady from Los Angeles who had set up a tent for women and babies. And so when people crossed that border, they had supplies. They had places for them to change diapers and that sort of thing. And uh, that's what Linda spent most of her time at the border doing. She got to cross into Ukraine in that capacity. And I wound up uh, shuttling people from that border because at that point, people crossed the border and the nearest shelter was six miles away. And so I would shuttle people to the shelter and then I'd go to the stores and buy whatever supplies that seemed to be needed at the time. Uh, but it was a very rewarding way to spend time. We, we were there 10 days and I came home for two weeks and then went back for two, uh, 10 more days. What were the differences in the two trips that you made, what you observed uh, on the first trip uh, when Linda was with you and then the second trip? Well, the first trip, things were a little more done on the fly because it was so early in the process. And, you know, it, it wasn't necessarily a good thing, but I could show up at the border crossing with my van load people up and take them to the shelter. But for all the authorities know, I was taking them into human bondage or something. The second time, they weren't allowing that anymore. When, when you cross that border, they have official buses. They put people on, and they take them to shelter where they register them, give them armbands, and it's more controlled. But there's also way less chance someone might abuse some of the refugees, uh, which not a bad thing. Uh, and so I didn't get to do any refugee shuttling the second trip, so almost all my efforts were going to get supplies and bringing them back. Um, and were you taking those supplies to the border? Well, it, some of the time, depending on where I was located, but yes, most of the time I would take in supplies, well, actually not to the border, but to the shelter near the border. The border is called Medica, and the sh nearest shelter was a, 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 a abandoned Tesco superstore, which was a kind of a Kmart in Europe. And it had been closed for some time. The authorities got it and converted it to a shelter. Wonderful place for a shelter. And that, so most of the time, that's where I was bringing the supplies to that shelter. And I'd go in and say, what do you all need? And they'd tell me, and I'd go to the store and get it. And they had, 
World Central Kitchen had a big kitchen set up inside the shelter, and that's where people were getting their food. And the bulk of their supplies were coming through World Central Kitchen, which was supplying big stuff to them. But uh, the thing they were always needing, one guy said, look, when you're at the store, think, what would your grandchild like? That's what you want to get. And so I was getting a whole lot of fruit boxes, fruit juice boxes, cookies, and candies, uh, because those weren't being supplied by the big suppliers. And uh, no matter how many fruit juice boxes I brought, and I brought as many as 600 at one time, they were always out the next time I came back and needed more. And so we did a lot of that. How many uh, Ukrainians um, and maybe others was that one facility taken care of in a day? Well, it's a transition facility, and the, 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 one of the coordinators there that let me help volunteer is a firefighter named Chris, and he said about 85% of the people that get there know where they want to go. And they got a relative in Spain or in Britain or in Italy. And so they process them at the shelter, and then they put them in a room of people going to the same place. And then when a bus is ready to go to Madrid, they load them up with people wanting to go to Madrid. Uh, about 15% of the people don't know where they're wanting to go, and they've got to help them sort that out. But uh, So some people are there for six hours. In fact, one group I, I transported that first trip didn't get out of the parking lot, and they got picked up and put in a vehicle to go into Germany. But most of them go in and get processed, and then they, they'll, the next day or two or three days later, they'll, they'll send them on someplace else. It's, but it's a transition facility. It's not set up for people to stay very long. But they have the capacity to hold over 600. And they've got one room they call room 13 that has 480 cots. And they, every morning, if you're the sleep there the night before, they move you out at 8 o'clock. Nobody's allowed back in till late in the afternoon, evening. And that's because they go in and disinfect and clean every one of those 480 cots of bedrolls, of pillows, and everything else. And it, but it's for the people who come in after the main process and you shut down for the day, and they keep them there for the night. And then hopefully the second night, they've moved them into the England room or the Spain room. And if are there people that end up not having a, somewhere to go? What if you are a refugee without a relative in another country. They, they, they work real hard finding that. And they, there's actually shelters in Krakow, for example, and some people wind up getting moved from the border to a more permanent shelter in Krakow. So they're, the Poles, I mean, they're really standing tall on this thing. The, the Polish community, they're taking people into their homes. The Polish government is supplying support. If you take a refugee and they're giving them I think it's 40s lattes a day, which is not much. It's $10, but that's still, you know, they're they're wanting to welcome the Ukrainians to the extent they can. But last I heard, they absorbed 200, two and a half million refugees in Poland alone, and so it's a it is a staggering effort on part of the Polish people and the other European countries too. But the Polish are bearing most of the brunt because they've got the border closest to Ukraine. There was a story on NPR just this morning about the. Uh the high cost uh, to the United States. Um, the conversation was with a, I'm assuming a State Department official, uh, and they were talking about, and it just seems like that, that every day there's a news story about the 
the billions that uh, President Biden is asking Congress to approve. And Congress has already done a lot of that. But now some people, according to this story, are, are beginning to raise questions about the, the amount of money. So I want to ask you about uh, how much more can we pour into uh, the effort? And two, how does uh, a country like Poland, how have they been able to continue this uh, effort uh, to support the refugees? Well, the Poles had a little different motivation because, you know, part of them believes if the Russians don't get stopped in Ukraine, they're going to come to Poland. And so they've got more motivation than, than we might have. But still, Poland is a very modern industrial country and they've got resources, but they're really straining. And whatever it's costing us, it's cost the Poles many times over that. And uh, it's, you know, higher, smarter people than me are going to have to make the decisions about what we can afford to spend over there, what we can't. But it, um, I'm 68 years old, and I don't believe there's ever been a moment in my life when there was as universally reviled person on this earth than Vladimir Putin. And it's the whole world's coming together to do what they can to bring that guy down, and I'm for that, you know. When you are there uh, on the ground, are you conscious of uh, the latest uh, assault on a particular Ukrainian city? Uh, uh, I, I, I'm, they have CNN worldwide news, so you're keeping up with the news just like you would be at home about what's going on, uh, what P Putin has done, where the latest uh, 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 assault might be in, a, in in Ukraine. Yeah, it, it, we've obviously got access to the internet there and and the, and the CNN World News. There are two quick stories on that. I was there one day at the border crossing, not at the shelter, but at the border crossing itself, and I was waiting with a couple of Polish fellows to get a load of supplies, and they were worrying. Apparently, the Belarus president had threatened if the Poles don't stop doing something for the Ukrainians, the Belarusians are going to get in the war. And they were afraid that any day now the Poles were going to get attacked. And I said, well, hey, you know, that's just not likely to happen because if it does, the wrath of God's going to come down on them when NATO decides to get involved in it. But that was their mindset. They were afraid they were going to get attacked. And that was two weeks ago. And then the other one, you know, people were talking about going into Ukraine to do various things. And I was given the opportunity to go to Lviv, and I turned it down. I was actually barely in Ukraine when that got the opportunity, but that was the day after seven people had been killed in Lviv in a bombing, and it's like, yeah, that's probably not that good an idea to go over there now. So we're aware of it, in some ways maybe even more than in the United States, because it's a little closer to home when you're at the Polish-Ukrainian border. I'm talking to Robert Cornett, uh, who is a private citizen, an attorney uh, in Georgetown, Kentucky, uh, but took it upon himself uh, with many others. But uh, he traveled uh, with his wife on the first trip, second trip alone, uh, to do what he could do to support the Ukrainian uh, people, uh, the refugees who are being um, uh, forced to leave uh, many parts of the, the country of Ukraine because of uh, the uh, assault uh, by Russian uh, government, uh, by Putin, the dictator himself, uh, to, it appears to me, kill as many people and ruin as much of the country as he possibly can. And we'll be back with more conversation with Robert right after this from our good 
underwriting sponsor, Spalding University. As a Kentucky humanities lover, you've heard of Spalding University's nationally distinguished MFA in creative writing. Now at the Naslin Mann Graduate School of Writing, we've added two innovative programs in professional writing. Your career goals take center stage as you work one-on-one -on -one with a faculty mentor to gain the writing skills employer's prize. Learn more about our low residency master's and certificate in professional writing at spalding.edu forward slash writing or email schoolofwriting at spalding.edu. Robert, is there, um, did you have a chance to, to dialogue with, uh, with people from all over the world, with Ukrainians, with, with the Polish? Uh, were there times when uh, you could um, have some downtime when you were just talking about the news of the day and what had happened and uh, what, what the latest uh, area of assault might have been? Uh, was it that kind of uh, atmosphere after you'd done your work at the border? Uh, did you have time to, to converse with people? Well, not as much as you might like. There was a whole lot of real short conversations about why are you here and where are you from kinds of things. And uh, But at the end of the day, emotionally just spent. And I was staying about 40 miles from the border, and so I would get in my vehicle and drive the 40 miles and decompress from the day. Uh, but the, the, there were a fair number of people who were staying at the border. There was one lady that uh, Linda made friends with that had been there since like March the 5th, and the first few nights she was staying in a tent at the border, and I'm too old for that. But uh, but a lot of people were having to, at least in the early days, there weren't any other options. Bitterly cold there it at that time. Well, it was in the earliest, but when Linda and I were there, it was actually up in the 60s every day. It was a very, and then the second time I was there, it was much colder. The mm -hmm. highs were in the middle, low 40s, and it was in the 30s at night. So the weather wasn't terrible. Fortunately, we got very little rain, but it, uh, you know, it was odd. The second time was much worse weather. You said that um, you were emotionally spent yeah, uh, and you need to decompress. Can you talk about that? Well, you just, as a grandfather, as a human, you know, you watch people, you know, they're, they're crossing that border. It's 150 yards. You can watch them coming across carrying some garbage bags. That's, that's what they get their stuff in. And uh, they're tend to be old or real young. And uh, it's when they cross the border, you know, a lot of tears flow. So it's tough. But, you know, it's, 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 you're glad to be there to help them. And uh, but emotionally, it's taxing. When you go in that shelter, you know, there's hundreds of people there. And... Uh, you know, on some levels, they're, they're doing well. You know, they've got food, they've got a, a cot to sleep on, but their lives have been completely disrupted. I, I transported one family. It's a lady who's almost as tall as me, and she was probably in her 40s. She had her mother with her. She had two children in her 8 to 10, 12 range. And uh, her, they were fortunate. Their husband had driven them to the border. Of course, he wasn't allowed to leave the country, but you know he dropped them off. They'd never know if they'd see him again. They could process, and they walked across that border into unknown world into my van. 
And uh, one level, you're glad to help give them a little bit of stability, but you can imagine the emotional trauma she was going through at that, those moments. And yeah, it's, uh, you just don't want people to have to deal with that, and they deal with it. Well, you know, she, she had a job to do, and she was doing it. And it uh, uh, but I was glad to help, but it's tough. And watching the refugees uh, come to the border crossing, mostly women and children? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's very, very well. There were, you know, a few very old men, uh, but yeah, the the rule is if you're a guy, and I think it's 18 to 60, you you can't leave. And then we saw a few people in that age group, and I, and I don't know why they were there. I'm guessing they were not Ukrainian nationals. They'd gotten caught over in Ukraine and were just getting out. But they, when when Linda made her trip into Ukraine to take supplies over, she said the line was eight hours long to get processed in, and, and you had to stand the whole time. And, and, and one of the things that people would do is they'd take food over there to give to people standing in line. But you can imagine if you've got a, if you're a mother and you've got three small children, you're standing in line for eight hours just to get permission to cross. And it, I dealt with, had one group in my van that had been on the road since March the 5th. And it was, this was like March the 25th, trying to get from Eastern Ukraine into Poland. And they were just exhausted. Um, but uh, but they'd made it, you know. That was the good news, and so um, but yeah, it's a hard thing to put them through. What advice do you have, or what are your thoughts about what Americans who are observing this but want to practice humanity as you did? Uh, what what can we do? Well. <clears throat> There's a lot of organizations over there working really hard to make the world a better place. The World Central Kitchen's everywhere. The, uh, the, there's a, but there was a shelter at the Krakow, Krakow train station run completely by the Polish Girl Scouts and their troop leaders and their parents. And they were, they were the only ones open on Easter Sunday. I didn't realize, but I knew instinctively the Poles were very devout Catholics, but I didn't realize they were going to shut the country down. But they do on Easter Sunday and the day after. But this shelter was open, and they were that was one of the places I was taking supplies to. And so the Polish Girl Scouts were doing wonderful work. There's a Catholic charity, Caritas, C-A-R-I-T-A-S, that was everywhere. But any charity you can think of has a presence over there, Red Cross, UNICEF, United Nations, and they're all perfectly willing to, to get some money to do towards their mission. That was one of the things that surprised me and Linda was the amount of interest it generated from our friends when they heard we were going. And I, my brothers and my daughters were all varying degrees militantly opposed to it. But once they realized, you know, the crazy bastard's going to do it, they gave me money, said, here, do something good with it. And, um, and then people would say, what can I do to help? And my daughter set me up a Venmo account, and I'd get $20 to $1,000 from various people, which would go into buying supplies. That the, When I was there this last time, I actually did a better job keeping track of receipts, and my assistant totaled them up for me when I got home, and I had about $45,000 45, Zlatte's worth of receipts, which is about $12,000, of stuff I just bought and, and given to one of the uh, shelters or the uh, distribution centers or another. And it, you know, every time you did that, 
somebody was giving you a desperate smile, thank you so much. One time I took some stuff over to one of them and, and I got swarmed before I got in. And it was almost like a scene from The Walking Dead. They just, and they stripped everything I had out of the basket before I even got to the people that were running the shelter. But as they were leaving me, one of the shelter guys came up to me with almost a desperate look said, is it possible for you to get bread? Yeah, it's possible for me to get bread. Mm-hmm. So we went back and got a cartload of bread, and uh, so, but but I was doing that because people were giving me money to buy the bread with, but so is all those other charities. But if people want to go over there, the only impediment really is just the will to do it and the ability to get the time off. Um, I can't remember if I told you I talked to a fellow from Wales who was watching it and he. Uh, thought of his grandchildren, and he quit his job and went to the border, and that's where he's been since, helping out. And uh, uh, But a lot of people can't do that, but they can still send $20 or $50 or $100 to one of those charities or find somebody else. I, I talked to two fellows this morning and another one yesterday that are either just got to Poland or going day after tomorrow to do the same thing. What can we do to help? And they're going to find something. And uh, you know, I spent two weeks over there, well, 10 days twice, and spend a little bit of money and a little bit of energy, but I got way more out of it than I gave. When I look back on my life, I suspect those two trips to Poland will be the most memorable, meaningful things I've done over the course of my life. And uh, I'd encourage anybody that thinks they would like to go to call me, text me, I'll give them whatever advice I can give them. Uh, There's a, the felt one of the guys I talked to today is planning to stay in three months. And so by the time he's finished with his stint, he's going to be the expert of what, what you can do and can't do over there. And, of course, situation on the ground changes. You know, we just don't know what it's going to be in another month. I don't think it's going to have gotten a whole lot better, but maybe it will have. So we just don't know. So we all know that uh, the United States uh, will approve 100,000 uh, Ukrainians um, refugees uh, into uh, our country. Um, would you suspect that just taking Kentucky, uh, the, the urban centers, uh, and uh, I'm sure facilities like the uh, Christian Refugee uh, Ministry, those, those types of organizations, uh, are, are we just in a, a holding pattern or a wait and see uh, on how many of those, for example, would come to central Kentucky or to anywhere in Kentucky? I, I have not followed that story. The, there's a Ukrainian church, a very large Ukrainian church in Nicholasville, which has yeah. kind of been the headquarters of the effort. And I would assume that it, to the extent we've gotten some refugees, that's where they've, they've started. But I, I don't know. But yeah. it's, uh, it, it would obviously be a noble effort for people in a position to take some refugees into their home. I was a little surprised. I read some of the... Uh, qualifications on that and apparently if I decided I want to accept refugees I would apply not about a particular refugee I would just apply as a person to, to bring some in and then I'd have to prove I had the financial ability to support them while they were here which is a, which I would but that's a, a little inconsistent with the mission yeah but um, but yeah it, it, I think we need to do as much of that kind of thing as we can and uh, and I think people will. I mean, I think the people 
are, this is really resonating with people. With the uh, United Nations making an effort to uh, negotiate a peace um, with talks uh, allegedly, uh, from what we understand, going on uh, 24-7, do you see any near resolution uh, that would uh, stop the fighting and the killing and the disastrous circumstances that all of that has left uh, to the country? Well, you'd, you would hope there would be, but, Bill, it's just hard to imagine Putin getting up one day and saying, oops, and uh, he just is not the sort of fella to admit he made a mistake, and I don't know where his off-ramp is. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they, the, the military obviously has not been as strong, as efficient as he thought they might have been or as any of us thought they might have been. I don't think anybody really believed the Ukrainians could stand up as well as they have to this guy. And uh, and obviously they have. And so I don't know how he gets out of it, but he can't win until, I don't know. But it's it's... I hope wiser men than me and women figure this thing out, but I'm not optimistic about there being a good resolution soon. So if the war stopped today, the pictures that we see uh, on television and in the newspaper in many, many areas, if not the in, almost the entire country, are, are just utter devastation. Um how can people, even if the the fighting stopped and, and troops withdrew, which they probably aren't going to, but what are people going to go home to? Well, a real mess right now. I mean, we we met a young lady when we were over there the first time. She was Ukrainian, but she'd been in Krakow for nine years, and she, um, her family was still in Kiev, and they were living in a shelter in the basement of their building that hadn't been used since the final days of World War II. And that's where they were living, and and it's just awful. And it's going to take a huge effort from all of humanity to help rebuild that country. But if we do, we will feel good about it, and uh, and it needs to be done. And I mentioned to Linda the other day, you know, when all this is over and done with, we need to go back to Ukraine as a traditional tourist, and just by being there and spending some money as a tourist will help them rebuild. But it's it's going to be a long, long struggle. But uh, at the end of the day, it's been a worthwhile one, I think. Yeah, Robert, um, you said this is uh, will have a lasting impact on your life, um, and I'm sure that that anyone who has lived through it is impacted by it. Certainly, the, those of uh, the, the Ukrainians. Any lasting thoughts on on this experience uh, that you will always uh, hold dear? Well, I mean, I still get a little weepy thinking about it every time I allow myself to go back down some of the scenes I saw. And, uh, you know, those moments are powerful when you get that kind of emotional reaction to them. And I don't anticipate those things will ever get too far away from me. And, and as I was talking to those fellows this morning who were literally just landed in Warsaw yesterday, I was thinking, you know, maybe I ought to try and find a way to go back. And I'm sure some people, especially people in my office, will say, no, you don't. <laughs> you got to stay here and earn a living. But it, uh, it, it, it was a really good way to spend t- 10 days twice, and I would encourage anybody to consider doing it. I'll I tell you one quick story. 
1989, the Berlin Wall was fixing to fall, and everybody knew it. And uh, I was a young attorney and thought, you know, I ought to go over there and watch that happen, and I didn't do it. And I spent however many years since then, 30-plus years since then, thinking I made a mistake by not pulling the trigger. And when this happened, I'm not making that mistake again. And so I was almost a bull in the china shop with my family and my daughter saying, I'm going. It's just a matter of how the details are going to work out. And I would encourage people, you don't want to be looking back six months from now saying, I wish I'd done something and then didn't. Take the opportunity to do whatever it is that you think you want to do. But I would take the opportunity to do it. Thank you for telling us your story. Well, glad to have to have the opportunity to tell it and uh, uh, hopefully there'll be a whole string of other Kentuckians with similar stories to tell here soon. Think Humanities is a podcast from Kentucky Humanities where we have been telling Kentucky's story for 50 years. Think Humanities is available at kyhumanities.org, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Join us next week for a new episode of Think Humanities.